Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. All right. That was beautiful. That, that song is uh, talking about taking my life and letting it be in the hand of God. And I want to talk to you today about being in the hand of God. This is the second of two uh, conversations um, that are related somewhat to, well, totally related actually, to time that I spent away. I was away for about five and a half weeks. Uh, I had a uh, uh, friend of mine in service last week afterwards said, hey, I hope you had a great vacation. And they meant well by it, and I didn't correct them. Um, But uh, the last 10 days, that was vacation. Um, The previous four weeks uh, was not. And most of that was spent in the desert, and it was a fairly intense time. I want to start by apologizing for an apology I made last week. Because at the end of the session, I apologized for the intense emotion that was driving it. It did surprise me because it was already present in first. I really didn't expect it in second. And at the end of that, I apologized for that emotion. So I want to apologize for that apology. Because I should not have offered it. Um, we do it in those moments because we feel very vulnerable. And, and uh, um, you know, so we're trying to kind of soften that a moment. But that can send a message to men then that sharing emotion is something inappropriate. And that's wrong. Now, wallowing in self-pity or, or you know, burying ourselves down and, and all, that's one thing. But to have honest emotion and to encounter something uh, in the presence of God or in our lives that is that powerful, uh, to apologize for sharing that in that way is a mistake, and I don't want to communicate that to our men. Uh, women as well, too. And so I apologize for my apology. And next week I will not be apologizing for the apology of the apology. <laughs> We're done, Okay. Um, it's ironic that the emotion was there as it was because the first two weeks that I was on this desert road, uh, I was emotionally dead. Um, I had come off not just uh, the three years of the pandemic and all that was involved with COVID stuff, but several years prior, two of items that um, when I left here after having the service on that Sunday and then caught the flight that night, um, I was just emotionally dead. I was flat. Um, You go in dark places sometimes. I, I, I'm flying out of Metro. All those of you, this is not, I shouldn't say this. Okay, well, well yeah. Um, you fly out of Metro, and I'm flying out of Metro, and all I could think of was the flight that went down, you know, years back in Metro as I'm flying over that area. All the people that you know, are scared to fly are turning to their spouses saying, see, I tell you, I shouldn't fly. So I'm there for those three weeks, and it's, it's water you can't drink. You have to use bottled water everywhere you're going. You can't brush your teeth or anything else like that because of the the circumstances. And um, I'll give you a quick snapshot of uh, of where I was at and how this travel went. Um, 
came into Cairo and then from Cairo flew down at, after a couple of days up there into Aswan and then from there had a boat. Took along little stops along the way to different locations that were historical nature, then stopped at Luxor and flew back up. And then crossed from Cairo into the Sinai. The whole purpose of this was in part to try to track what Israel would have experienced in Egypt and then in their journey. So tracked across, ended up at a place called Dahab, little town on the edge of the water there a bit. But it's within an hour and a half of uh, Sinai and climbed Mount Sinai, the historical Mount Sinai. Came back, caught a ferry over into Aqaba, Jordan. And then uh, this is Israel, this is Jordan. Uh, spent again more desert time up here uh, until eventually getting up to near the Dead Sea at Amman and flying out from there to Turkey. Um, I mentioned a lot about Sinai last week, so just a quick snapshot I should have had last week. This is Mount Sinai. And uh, um, that's me uh, up, no, it's not me. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, and so you can see, though, the ruggedness of this whole territory uh, of the Sinai. It's very rugged land. It's a very hot, inhospitable um, place. And so for three weeks, I'm not having meals with anybody for three weeks. I mean, the first two weeks, just dead emotion. Then there's more things that come breaking through. When you're alone in the desert like that, there's certain things that penetrate, some things that, that you start to value, some things that you, you don't like in regards to yourself. All that stuff kind of swirls together. And so after three weeks of that or so, I was in Istanbul, had a transition period of about five days, and we'll talk about that in the future because there's some really interesting things about Istanbul. It was the, the last capital of Rome. It was a capital of Roman Empire for um, probably about 1,000 years, and most of us don't realize that. So we'll talk about that some other time. Then I finally get into Rome itself. I cross over and go into Rome. And the first day I'm in Rome after close to four weeks of not having meals with anybody else, not having a real significant engagement other than with some guides and some things like this, um, I had had prearrangement because one of our uh, young guys, uh, Josh Linder, uh, was traveling in Europe at the time and happened to be in Rome at the same time. So my first time is meeting with Josh up for dinner. And um, I don't know if Josh noticed it, but I, I felt incredibly socially awkward. Uh, as the first human being, I'm having any real discourse that knows me and that, you know, that I'm supposed to actually be social with. You know, whereas anyone else I don't have to do that with. And we had a great time there, but it was just... It was, it was unusual literally crossing that barrier a bit. Now, a um, day or two later, Renee, my wife, shows up. And then we transitioned to what was actually the vacation portion, but uh, to reflect on everything. Um, Renee mentioned to me a couple of days ago, had not said this to me before, but a few days ago said, when you showed up, when I showed up in Rome, said, you look really rough. And I said, really? She said, yeah, yeah just, you look really rough. And I said, mm, that's probably appropriate. Um, so I want to share with you, as I did last week, some of the things that I learned through this that I think are applicable to the church. Last week, I think overwhelmingly the issue of the sense of God's presence, that without God's presence in our lives or in our endeavors, that there's something about that that's just not going to work. This week, there's three other items, really one I'll dwell on. There's much more, and we'll talk about over the next couple of months, maybe years. Um, one of the things that coming off of something like this, I need to explain to you, there is a level of tenderness. Some of you who have spent time in solitude or you've spent time in intense moments with God, you know that getting back into crowds is a hard thing, and it's almost a part that you won't, don't want to do because you find yourself falling into patterns again or it erodes that element that is present. 
Uh, when I went away to college and I came back, I'd changed quite a bit, but getting back into my parents' household again and uh, um, uh, with their view of me that hadn't changed as much, I find myself falling back into patterns. And it took me a little while to reintegrate who I was. It's the same thing here. There's certain things that have been changed that I don't want to lose in that process. And that's why it's been cautious on the, the uh, getting back into play here again. Um, when I left, there was, like I said, an intensity uh, that I had. Uh, I, was, I was unappreciative of what we had here. I, I'm not saying that I um, complained at all. I, I would say that I strategically addressed negative things. I complained. Because as things happen, the, the things that you value kind of um, fall away increasingly. Now, I've come back from all this with an energy and a drive and a clarity, so I want you to understand that. We're talking about the presence of God, as we said last week. The Jewish people used to always have the question, with God in the center and a situation of grace in this circle, how far can I go away from God and still be within the center of grace? And that was referred to as the Jewish question. But the question we're supposed to have as believers is not how far can I, what can I do, what can I have? The question was supposed to be, what is between me and God? How do we get closer to the presence of God? And so as we look at that and as I, as I examine the things, here's, I guess, what I come away with. One, I have a greater appreciation for what we have. I have a great appreciation for what is, whether it's in my own personal life and the way that God's blessed me or whether it's within us as a congregation. When you're separated from the congregation, uh, you're not in worship as a corporate entity. It's a different feeling. And so two or three things. One is appreciating what we have. I was watching my live stream. And, um, and I will tell you, and I, I, I did not text at this time, but now's a good time probably to say this. Um, once or twice as watching the worship, it, I was broken by just watching the worship and, and, and our, our, our guests that were in. But one moment that completely dismantled me was Abby, when you sang for the first time up here for years, it blew me away. I was in my room alone, and I was just broken one, you've got a beautiful voice. But two, is especially the one song you're saying, I know how much meaning it had to you. And so you nailed me twice in one service, okay? <laughs> Both at worship and then at the back end. We have a great fellowship. For 55 years, we have walked without any lawsuits of any kind, being party to or having extended towards us. We've not had division of any kind. We discuss things vigorously, but never violently. There's not been fights. There's not been that kind of things. No splits, no kind of garbage of that nature. This has been a consistent congregation for 55 years. And um, that's a blessing all in itself. So one is appreciating what we have. When you come back into the presence of God, you change from being picking on the things that aren't there to appreciating what you do have. So I offer that to you today. The other thing is, is I became very conscious because I was taking classes um, remotely while I was doing this as well, too, on culture and ancient times. And I became aware of something that I'm already more conscious of something I was already aware of. And that is that in ancient times, um, they would kill people left and right. They each had places where they would kill each other. In Rome, there's a place called the Tarpian Rock. They'd throw people off. And Capri, the emperor, had a place he'd toss people over the edge. And so they have all these places that kill people. But one of the things that was actually viewed as a worse-than-death issue was exile. 
If someone was exiled from Rome or from Athens or from Jerusalem, it was viewed as worse than death. They didn't go to another town or city with the same things. It was usually a place that was far lesser in technology, comfort, certainly in culture, and all the rest that was part of it. And so if you were exiled from the community, it was worse than a death sentence. It was a living death away from the center and the vibrancy and the strength and all the, the relationships, everything that were part of that. So they had a sense of community today that I think is much more intense than what we understand today. And so one is appreciating what we have. Two is, is having an appreciation for community, valuing what we have in relationship here. And then the, um, the last thing I would talk to you today is this, in the hand of God. And to do that, I, I really need to go to a scripture, and I know that right now you're, you're in that place where it's just, well, I'm just, I've, I've settled in, I'm just, I'm, I'm right in that zone where given enough time I can drift off real nice, don't interrupt that. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word? Reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, for there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, different kinds of service but we serve the same Lord. There's a unity here. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of this. And then this, a spiritual gift is given to each of us. To each of us. So that we can help each other. Father, anoint your word, I pray. Amen. Have a seat. So in the hand of God, This passage about giftedness means that every one of us have something to offer, that we can contribute to what's taking place. There are some of us that, as long as we've been in this congregation, have never actually been in a place of service. You've been in relationship for years, sometimes decades, but you've never really gotten involved in an act of service. And it's in serving together that we actually form the deepest relationships. This is why people in the military say, yes, we served together. There's one television show, a rough and raw one, that at the end of the day, when one's a criminal and the other one's a lawman, they still have a connection and bond, and they finish with a statement, you know why we have this? Yeah, because we dug coal together. They were coal miners together as kids. And there's something about being in the coal mine, protecting each other. That's my father and grandfather's background, that you, you dig in that dark place, but you watch out for each other in the process. It's in serving that we draw closer and tighter together. Our people who served in Osborne recently and were part of the robotics thing, we started that item. We're giving these kids a technological edge. And of those 10 or 11 students, I was told last week, three of them were salutatorians or valedictorians. You had an opportunity to shape those lives. They were here on our campus, in our service, more than once. So those of you that have been engaged in Osborne, what effect you're having there? I don't know. I'm sure there's probably a few spaces left to assist with something as simple as the children's ministry. Just to, to fill the gap there while our children's ministry people get a breakthrough this summer. Ah, oh, this is what this whole service is about. It's about getting people to work more. No. No, it's not. I'm just, this is a side point, but it's important that when we serve together, each of us have these gifts. Each of us have been given these items. But this goes deeper and, and I said, this is something that came out of what my experience was that I think I, I, I'm trying to translate this for all of you. And to do that, I have to take you a, a little bit further in. 
And so I'm going to take you to another passage of Scripture. Keep that gifts one in your mind. I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 49, where God is speaking to Israel, to his people, and he said, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. This whole concept and idea that, that, that we are like a sharpened sword. Somebody's welded and, and forged and shaped in fire and then sharpened and it's hidden there but it's ready to come out. Or this polished arrow worked and defined and just waiting in the quiver to, to come out and be fired and then links this to being a servant which is again one who takes his gifts and, and honors the one who he serves. And in those gifts and in this sharpened sword and polished arrow is where we come to understand what God has for us and who we are supposed to be in him. Now, I've got a tool bunch up here. And I know you can't see this too well, so I've tried to give you a, a snapshot of what's up here. Um, this, I, I think, seals a bottle opener. So it's just kind of a bizarre little thing. I just thought it was cool. Um, this one is the early Black & Decker, okay? <laughs> really early. I mean, this is like the drill thing, man. This is, oh, it's down here. That's right. You go down here and you drill holes. Yeah. And it works real well. Uh, this is a, a torch and lamp. You got your, your uh, wrench here. You got your basic hammer. Uh, all the different tools we have, different size, different shapes, different purposes even. Different. You can't use this to go pounding nails and, you know, you can't use this to belt, burn and weld things with. But the classic of all these probably is um, the knife. Now, this is one of the earliest tools that we find. And um, this knife is one of the few things. I wasn't buying things while I was gone. But this I did. I went past the knife shop. It was in Istanbul, near the transition point of my journeys. And I'd gone past this knife shop, just a little hole in the wall, um, that, uh, that this guy hand makes them. I'd gone past it two or three times. Uh, it's... It was on my way from my hotel to crossing the bridge, a, a multi-mile walk that I would take to get into the center of what used to be Constantinople and to explore some of the historical elements there. Go past it two or three times, and I stopped in the first time just out of curiosity. It was kind of interesting, some of the things in the window. I kept getting drawn back and drawn back, and this knife is there. It wasn't finished yet, but it was in its raw state, and I got drawn to the heft of it. I got drawn to something else, and I realized later there was something else particularly that drew me and so I ended up purchasing this knife. Now, I do not need more knives. My wife will tell you, he does not need more knives, okay? Any more than he needs more mugs right now, all right? And I told myself that. I said, I, I'm not buying things right now. This is not what this trip is for. And I wasn't doing that. Well, I bought this shirt. That's a different issue. Okay. <laughs> I bought these jeans. That's a whole other issue though. It was turkey. The stuff like 20 bucks for the jeans, they're 120 at, at Nordstrom's, but 20 bucks in turkey, and this was like five bucks, whatever. <laughs> but I didn't need the knife, and it was more expensive. But I bought it. And this knife has come to symbolize a little bit of my journey, and in some ways has come to symbolize me. See, people, I realize, are a little bit like knives. Um, knives come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And they can be different ways, like this knife here. This has got a beautiful pattern. It's what's called Damascus steel. It's, it's ancient style, but it's really beautiful and flashy. And you got the gold, and you got the black. And this is like a person. It's like someone who's very sophisticated, a little complex, very classy. 
Okay? This person travels a lot, um, sips champagne, and goes to uh, the uh, opera regularly. <laughs> or you have this knife. This is someone a little more basic. They're down to earth. Wouldn't be caught dead at an opera. They'd go to NASCAR. Okay? <laughs> They're down to earth. They're a different kind of person. This next one, did you see flash up there? This one is a high-tech, uh, actually a switchblade knife that flips out, very polished, beautiful blade. Um, this is high-tech, this is a young person, very techy, very sharp in all they do, and it's, it's cool, and it's neat, and folds away and, and disappears in a moment of time. This next one that you see is more like an older person, kind of classic, actually, with the polished walnut there, and a little bit of ivory, and yeah, Damascus tenant there, and stuff like this, they're old-time classic. They're, they, they drive a classic car, maybe, maybe a 1939, you know, or 1967 Corvette, something like that, maybe. And then this next knife, this, this one's a killer. It's two-edged. This is someone who's a defender. This is someone who's a fighter. And then there's the knife I have. I got the knife, and I, I didn't understand why I didn't need it, but I think part of it relates, not part of it, this is what it relates to. By the, the second week or so, in the latter portion of the second week, different things I was understanding and coming to a conclusion of. One of them that was still somewhat rooted a little bit in some bitterness, but changed into something extremely positive. So I want you to listen to this next part very closely, because you'll misunderstand otherwise. One of the things that, that came to me in this process you hear this closely. I felt like I was a tool, like I am a tool, I realized. I'm a tool that people pick up and they apply to different situations and circumstances. And then when they're done with it, they toss it back in the drawer or hang it back up on the wall. Any of you ever feel like that? If you think about it, you will. Our doctors, uh, our mechanics, our electricians, any of our professionals, any of the people anywhere, mom, dad, we, 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 we pick them up and we apply them to our situation and then we toss them back in the drawer or put them away. And, and there can be a bitterness to that. There can be a resentment over that. That we're just somebody that someone picks up and uses. But there's another side to that aspect. There's the other side of realizing that some tools... <laughs> There's only some situations that certain tools will apply to. I can't light a fire with this. Um, I, I, I can't, you know, pound nails with this. There, there's, there's a uniqueness to the tool that applies to the situation, and there is an honor in being a tool in the right hands. But if we view ourselves as being a tool in the hands of others, there's a resentment that comes over time because we can feel used because rarely is there consideration or honor given to some of the tools in our lives. But if we view ourselves as tools in the hands of God, it changes everything. So this is in my head and it changed my mind to, from the resentment or burdensome of that in my, in my darker moment of time here to the realization of of the beauty of that, the self-containment of that. And so here's the thing. What I was told about this, this is an extraordinarily heavy blade, heavier than anything else I have. And the owner of the shop, the, the man and his wife who ran it, who makes these, 
He said, this is D2 steel. I had no idea what steel was. I've read up on it since then. And D2 steel isn't used as often in the U.S. One of the reasons why it's not used as often is because it's an extremely tough steel. It's very hard. It takes, they say, a master sharpener to sharpen this. It's so hard to get an edge. But once it gets an edge, it holds it much longer than most steel. It's highly resistant to heat. It's also referred to specifically as tool steel. And I realized after I picked it up and as I was continuing to process that that's what was driving me mostly on it. The idea that this knife is tool steel, that, that this knife has something of an intensity to it. This whole idea of being a tool in the hand of God. He's saying that we're sharpened swords in the shadow of his hand, that we're to be a polished arrow, that we are servants or tools of his in whom he's going to display his splendor, that your gifts and my gifts, because all of us, all of us are tools, all of us. The question is whether we allow ourselves to be placed in the hands of others and discarded or abused, or whether we recognize that we're in the hand of God and that he applies us to specific situations that perhaps you only can address, that you can address situations and circumstances that I can't, and that I can that you can't. It's the tool for the job. And there's an honor in being reached for. Because only certain tools can apply to that situation in that place. As I was reviewing that, I found myself more and more um, drawn into passages of scriptures like Jeremiah 18.1 that says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I'm going to give you my message. So it's going to be a visual message. So Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house. He says, I went down there and I, I saw him working at the wheel. So he's just watching. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. Something of the spin of the wheel or some defect in the clay had deformed the project that was being worked on there. And so the potter formed it into another pot. Watch this. Shaping it as seemed what? I want you to really capture this. He's shaping it as it seemed. I really want you to understand this today. He's shaping it as seemed to him. Not best to us. Not best to our father or mother or our children. Not best to our employers or anyone else that speaks in our life. He's shaping it as seems best to him. And then the word of the Lord came to me and he said, can I not do with you as this potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. God is saying that he shapes us, that we are, in fact, tools in his hand. That he's the one shaping us. He's the one transforming us. If we view life in this way, then we look at everything completely different. That whatever defects we have, God is using and reshaping this. Now, when I had this knife done, he needed to sharpen it. And he says, because it was completely a dull blade. And he didn't even want to sharpen it much because he's into the craft and the beauty of it. And the more you sharpen it, the, the sharper it gets, the more it takes off the blade and comes up on the blade. 
And so I said, well, what are the levels of sharpness? And he gave me some range. I don't remember what they were on the far end, but I remember the upper end was culinary. It was like the sharpest it could be was culinary. And I said, make it culinary. I want this thing as sharp as possible. And in my mind, I'm sitting here going, I want this as sharp as possible because I want to kill people if I need to. <laughs> Just if they come in my house, okay? Or mess with my car. <laughs> or criticize my clothing. Or even just annoy the heck out of me. And so he made it as sharp as possible, culinary. And I get back and I'm sitting here and we think of it this way. And we think, yeah, I'm, I'm, that, I'm that defender fighter knife. I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, I got to. But it's a culinary edge. My background, my things that have shaped me, have shaped me into a fighter, have shaped me into a more aggressive person. And God's sitting here and I'm saying, I'm a fighter. He says, no, um, I want you to go to the kitchen. <laughs> and I want you to slice up some things and prepare a meal and I want you to serve it. And that's what I've done this morning. And that's what I do every Sunday. Others of you think, no, I'm, I'm the one in the kitchen. I'm the culinary. I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a defender. No, you're the one that's going out and you're going to kill giants. That's you. I want to stay in the kitchen. No, you're going to go kill giants. That's who you are. Each tool for its purpose. And each tool in the hands of God becomes something completely different than that which has been abused by men. It has an identity all its own based on who owns it and what your purpose is. Because all of us have spiritual gifts and we bring these together for the purpose of encouraging one another but also to reveal the glory of God. We are all sharpened swords, hidden, ready to be brought out for the moment by our Lord and Master. We are each of us polished arrows in the quiver, waiting to be fired, each one to be servants, to be tools in the hand of God to display his splendor in your workplace, in your marriage, in this church, in Osborne, in the surrounding community, in the sports that you play, and the people that you see. Each one of us are tools of one type or another. I was reminded, I, I, this is how much I'd, gone dark on certain things. I'd forgot even. A couple of weeks before I left, I, I spoke to you about one of my life passages. And even as I did that, I, I'm in the back of my head niggling. You know, I've, I've, there's two of them that's always been really prevalent to me, and I just can't remember what the other one was. And, and the one um, that I, I told you about is, is, is when Jesus is quoting Isaiah 42 in Matthew chapter 12, where he's saying, a bruised reed he'll not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And it talks about the grace of God, and that's been a, a hallmark passage for me. But there's a second one that I'm like, where was that? I forgot there. There's that other passage. And I remembered. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 7 through 9, I could get very emotional about this, but I'm not going to do that today. Not that it's wrong. The passage here says, For we have this treasure in jars of what? Clay. Being shaped with all our defects and all our other issues, being shaped into something that will reveal God's splendor. We have this treasure. What is this treasure? It is the grace of God. It is salvation. It is the presence of God in these jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 
If there's anyone being persuaded now or, or in the atrium, and I was in the, in the atrium worshiping with you guys today, you never know it, but I'm always there in the back lurking quietly. So I see you guys out there or online. If there's any power to what's being said, it's the power of God and not from us. We are tools in his hand. And then this part, we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. There's a defiance about this passage that I love. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. We're perplexed. What the heck? What's going on? But not in despair. Persecuted. If you haven't yet, you will be but not abandoned in the midst of that persecution, and then struck down, but not destroyed. We are flawed vessels carrying the treasure of God to reveal his splendor to a lost world, perhaps misused by people, but never by God. And if we really understand and center ourselves as people in his hands, to be used by him for the purposes, then we don't get lost in the darkness of what comes from other people. I like this knife a lot. It's hard and it's tough. It's extremely resistant to heat. It takes a master sharpener to sharpen it because it's so hard. It resists it resists others. It takes a master sharpener, but having gotten its edge, it will not lose it. I have one final thing to share with you this morning. See, I've asked for um, the group to play a song for you. And as this song came into our conversation, I identify with it a lot, and, and I, I hope some of you will as well, too. It's entitled Desert Road. So I want to give you some imagery um, for this as we go into this. As I said, the first three and a half weeks were mostly desert. And if you haven't been in desert, then it, it's hard to describe, but it's hot. It's, it's featureless at times, difficult to get across the terrain. Water is an important issue. Um, you know, at three and a half weeks, you're not brushing teeth, all the process of that. Um, and this was the experience I had for most of the journey. It has its own beauty. It really is. There's a beauty to it. And so as um, I'm going through all this, I have to, uh, at one point in time, I'm in Jordan, and um, I've, I'm at a place called Wadi Musa, which is where Petra, the city of Petra is. In a moment, they'll play this song for you. But I'm in this, in this place, and, and I've been there before. I've come down from Amman, the capital, which is on the Dead Sea, down before by a car, and I remember the, the route that I took, and I wanted to go back the same route. Now, here's the thing about the cars in there. Um, I had to get a car ride up, about a three-hour drive. Several times I had to use cars. Throughout the entire time, in any of the desert areas, when I'd, I'd get a car organized, I'd meet a guy, and I'd, I'd like him, I'd like his vehicle, I'd trust him, so I'm saying, hey, tomorrow I'm leaving, can you drive me the two-hour distance or whatever it is? Say, oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, you sure? Yep, okay, good. And somebody else would show up. Every single time. Now, it's going to be you, right? You're going to show oh, yes, I will be here. Next person on time, there with the car, but it's not him, it's, it's his brother. Or his uncle or his father's roommate from college, whatever, you know, it, it, and, and that happened every time. 
And it made me a little leery because I knew this guy. We'd, we'd travel a little bit at least. And now I've got to, and this is the, the, the transition point where I'm, uh, you know, I can't risk that. And so here's the final transition point where I'm going up to Amman. I'll be there one night and then I fly out. And, um, and I get in the car and the guy starts out from the little town and he's on the road, okay, and then he goes off-road. And I mean, we're off-road. We're suddenly on this, like, trail. It's, it's cobbled, not even cobbled, it's just dirt tracks and then occasional um, pavement. And it's windy and it's up and down. I mean, I've never been on a road like this in my life. I'm serious. It was just the most bizarre little track. And I'm like, this is not the way I came down when I was here a couple of years ago. I'm like, does this guy know where he's going? Um, I'm beginning a little concerned. I, I, my GPS device, device that is satellite linked, I'm, I'm discreetly trying to hold it outside the window to make sure there's a reading so they'll find the body at least when this terrorist cuts me up out in the desert area and leaves me for the bones and stuff like that. And so I'm trying to, you know, I'm serious, I'm discreet because I'm sitting going, I, this is, I have no idea where there's nothing out here but goats and they look unfriendly. <laughs> and, um, and then finally it comes off a miracle of miracles. He must have taken some shortcut and actually connected with this kind of highway that takes you up in the mountains and with sheer drop-offs and it's breathtaking. But it's and, and you get up through the mountains and as you come across the mountain top, these really high, intense mountains, then you're coming and there's the Dead Sea down below. And I always thought it was really kind of, what a psych for, for Moses and the children of Israel because they, they come along through this whole desert no water, and they come and they come up at the top of the mountains of Jordan. And as they come up, they look over into the promised land across the Jordan Valley, and they see this beautiful big body of water. It's like, oh my gosh, it's the Dead Sea. You can't drink it. You can't, it smells terrible. There's nothing that lives in it. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. And I always thought, man, that must have really bummed Moses out when he gets over that. But there's a certain beauty to it. So we come through the mountains, and then as we come out of the mountains, we're going to the flats of the Dead Sea and the Jordan Valley, and it's desolate. It is just desolate. You're driving along, and then finally you come up to the place I'm staying at, and it overlooks the water. And it's a dead area, but my last moment of the time that I had in the desert there, that last night, I stepped out, And um, this last final picture is what I saw. And it hit me with such a power at that point as I closed out that moment of saying even in places that are dead, God brings beauty into it. Because for me, that was just God's presence in that moment of time glistening across the water. The desert road that he takes us on to shape us into the tools that can be properly used is not something we always find joy in. It's not an easy road. It can be desolate. It can be lonely. It can be terrifying with only ugly goats. But God brings beauty out of all that until he has shaped us, sharpened us, worked us into what um, he sees to be proper for his glory and for his honor. And if we're really, really blessed and really, very wise, then we end up um, being tools, pulled off the shelf, used by situations, but, but ultimately we find ourselves 
in his hands. And there is no greater honor. There is no greater privilege. So that's my report thus far. There's a lot of this that will continue to creep in over the next year, maybe years even as we go along. But next week we begin an entirely new series. Um, and what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the songs that we sing. Uh, you know, we can get caught up with it as a concert experience or we can get caught up with it as worship. Do we understand even what we're singing and, and how much songs shape our theology and our thinking about God? And so we're going to talk about that. Um, I think it's uh, Steve Martin has a little rift he does uh, and, uh, called Atheists Have No Songs. <laughs> Which is true. There's, there's, no, there's no element, but there's powerful music within the church. So we're going to talk about that over the next couple of weeks' time. But today, wherever you're at in your experience, know that God sees you where you're at. That scripture in Isaiah 42 actually continues on, and at one point in time where he talks about us being sharpened swords and arrows, there's a part in time where, where Israel's saying, but we don't see you, we seem to be lost. He says, would I ever forget you? I could no more forget you than a mother could forget her child. He says, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. Your names are engraved in the palms of my hands. A beautiful pointing towards Christ and his sacrifice to come. You are loved, you are valued, and you have gifts and he wants to see you use them. Okay? Father, we commit this into your hands, and I pray, Lord, that we continue on, that you'd guide us in how uh, you would have us be used. We commit all these things before you, and by your grace we stand. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Amen.